Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. My guest, Heather McDonald. You're going to love this woman. She is incredible, so talented, so special. Just such an incredible entrepreneur, a great comedian, and a great writer, and a great personality all around. Before I get started, I just want to thank you all so much for listening and for sharing and subscribing. I'm so grateful. It means so much to me. You guys are so amazing, the things you write and send me. It just blows me away. And the messages you send me on Instagram and Twitter, at BarryCats, keep them up. They're incredible. You guys have been so supportive, and I'm so grateful. And as you know, I always do a cold open to start the shows. And as I look at my guest, Heather McDonald, I can't help but think that this is somebody who really, really has been through the gamut and has done so many different things in so many areas of the business, but has also suffered setbacks, just like everybody else in the world in any business. But when I think about Heather, the biggest thing I think about is the thing I knew her most for was for Chelsea Lately. And she spent seven years working with Chelsea, seven years working on the show, not just as a writer or producer, but also somebody who was on camera a lot, doing a lot of panels, sketches. And that's a big part of your life when you're working on a show for seven years. But like most things in the world, in our personal lives and business lives, Things end, and sometimes they end abruptly, and sometimes you don't understand why they end, and you can't figure it out, and you're left just wondering why or how can I go on 
without this thing that's been in my life for seven years. And the thing that impresses me so much about Heather is the fact that even though she did mourn the loss and even though she did not really always quite understand why things went down the way they did when she left Chelsea's show and she didn't really necessarily know all the ramifications of why her relationship with Chelsea changed. The bottom line is she channeled that energy into herself. She channeled the energy that she would have spent working on Chelsea lately, working for somebody else, getting paid by another company, and she channeled it into her podcast, the Juicy Scoop podcast. And if she had stayed at Chelsea, she never would have gone and done this podcast. If, let's say, she had gone on to work with Chelsea in her new ventures, she wouldn't have had the time to do the podcast. She bet on herself. She put all her eggs in her own basket. And subsequently, it's been a massive success and she's gotten over one million listeners every month. That's incredible, everybody. And it's just an amazing accomplishment. And in its simplest form, I can't even stress it enough that she is an example for everybody. That if you can figure out how to deal with something where you've been a success and you've worked in a situation for so long and it ends without warning. If you can channel your energy into your career and betting on yourself like she did, I can guarantee you, you'll have the possibility of having the kind of great, wonderful, inspiring career that Heather McDonald has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. So excited sitting across from my guest today, Heather McDonald. Valentine's Day week here. We're going to have a great time. And I can't think of a better way to start than to introduce her and get it going. So here goes. When Heather McDonald stood on stage in front of dozens at the 1992 Miss Tarzana pageant, she assumed she'd reached her peak. Little did she know, 20-something, mostly sober, years later, Heather would be an in-demand, multifaceted comedian headlining sold-out shows all over the country. In addition to stand-up, television guest spots, and uncredited reality TV cameos, Heather can be heard twice a week on the hit podcast Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald, breaking down pop culture, hot topics, and her own personal drama. Guests range from real housewives to real listeners. 
Her show receives over 1.2 million downloads a month and has over 4,000 five-star reviews on iTunes. Amazing. Heather wrote best-selling books, You'll Never Blue Ball in This Town Again, and My Inappropriate Life, Some Material Not Suitable for Small Children, Nuns, or Mature Adults. Her weekly column, What Heather McDonald Noticed This Week, has been featured in In Touch magazine for the past three years. In 2015, she debuted her Showtime special, I Don't Mean to Brag, later shown on Netflix. She also was a contributing writer on the Wayans Brothers films Dance Flick and the blockbuster White Chicks. You might recognize her for the seven years she spent writing, producing, and appearing on Chelsea Lately, as well as its spin-off show, After Lately. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Please welcome Heather McDonald. Thank you, Barry Katz. <laughs> yes, I will let anyone um, crack my back or park my car. You can be a full-blown stranger off the street. And that's what happened. The lot here, the parking structure here we're at Wondery, which is a very nice building. And I'm sure for normal people, they're not intimidated by this parking structure. But I have like an entire bit in my act based on the fact that I pulled out of a parking structure just like this where they have the big concrete rectangles holding up the roof and scraped the whole side of my car. <laughs> so I have like post-traumatic stress disorder and I stress so much. So when I saw you, I was like, park my car. If I'd have known that, I would have cracked your back in the car <laughs> while parking it. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It was like, I just, yeah, whoever can help me. I've had full-blown strangers help me park my car. You have this, I always say, huggability and lovability to you, but you also have an edge. It's interesting. It's almost like the darkness and the light smash together, but you're pushing the darkness way down and the light just comes out. When Are you I'm a psychic me. or a Hollywood manager? <laughs> what the hell is this? Am I wrong? I don't know. I mean, I, I love that. Um, I mean, I love that you are saying compliments, a compliment to me. Who doesn't love that? But like, no, I definitely think I'm edgy and sometimes I am. My act is edgy and I've always felt edgy, but it's always been like a weird juxtaposition, which is why my second book was My Inappropriate Life, because I was this really good Catholic girl and I always want to do the right thing. And I have extreme Catholic guilt. My kids go to Catholic school and I I care about having like that image of like, you know, a proper person and a good mom. But then, you know. I think of sick, crazy shit, and I talk very honestly on stage and on the show. Um, but it's all, like, kind of come together in the last couple years. <laughs> I think it tied, I might have been a late bloomer, I mean, in I think in a way, to be honest, with my career. Well, I always say the world speaks and the world will tell you everything you want to know from what you give it. Yeah. And the content that you put out... Let's face it, I don't have to tell you this. You've known many, many comedians since you started. Many of them are selling cars, are in accountants' offices, are working in restaurants, and they're no longer doing it anymore. They put the content up. They did the podcast, yet the world didn't come. <laughs> the world came to you when you gave them something that was extraordinary, People forget about this all the time. I think Will Rogers once said this 100 years ago. He said, if 1% of the people like you, 
you're going to be a star. Well, that's not even accurate in our society. One percent of one percent of one percent of one percent of one percent can love Heather McDonald, and Heather McDonald is a star. And that's the way the world works now, because if you look at how it is, like when you put a show up, let's say you do a show in Boston with Chris Frangiola, let's say the City Winery. How many seats is that? Um, I think it's a few hundred, like three or three, three fifty. Three fifty. Okay, so when you go there, three fifty, you figure a person brings a friend, the person brings their date, their husband brings their wife. Technically, you, you only have to get a hundred and seventy-five people to commit to go minimum, and you're going to be sold out. A hundred and seventy-five, and you're a success story. And you have so many more than that. You look at, I've been studying all your videos and looking at all the stuff you've done and millions and millions of people have watched you. Right. But only so many people will actually buy a ticket and leave their home, which is which is something to consider. And I, and I do think that there's certain comedians because my husband, um, I tell him, please stop. But he'll sometimes get obsessed with comedians that are friends of mine that are much more successful on the road than I am and constantly bring it up. And when I try to say, well, I'm not that person, he'll say, you're not, you're selling yourself short. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not a Mexican man who's his audience, you know, they'll spend half of their income on entertainment. That's just a fact. You know, I'm like, I, I know that I have really loyal people. They'll listen to me every Tuesday and Thursday, but there's only so many people that will go and, Get a sitter and make a plan and buy a, buy a ticket, which I'm very appreciative for. Comedians are a unique breed. For instance, if I put you in a soundproof booth with a true serum in your veins and I said, I want you to tell me the top five stand-up comedians working today, chances are all five of those would be selling huge, huge amounts of tickets. And chances are that you would not put yourself in those top five. Correct. So when your husband says this guy's selling tickets or whatever it is, it might not be one of the top five. It might right. be one of the top ten or whatever right. it is. But the fact is the reason why, in my opinion, people are coming to certain people, you have your lane. Yeah. You have your specific point of view that you talk about. You talk about your relationship with your husband. This great material that you have about your husband. I was watching a clip the other day where you were talking about how military people come back and the women aren't dressed well. They got a hair on a ponytail and would, you know, <laughs> slap on some lip gloss. My husband actually fixed the water pressure on the sink and I blew him. Everything speaks of truth. For it is. You. It is. I remember the day and I remember when I saw the, the, the news bit with this girl looking like shit. Her husband was so hot at Marine, who's been through hell and back. And I remember the day that, that he fixed the, the sink, you know? So it's like every, when people go, is this, is this stuff really true? I'm like, yes, every single thing. I mean, sometimes a longer story gets made into a shorter one. And sometimes there's a punchline that comes later or a tag. But everything I talk about in my act or my podcast has come from something that's really happened in my life. So I'm very fortunate that I have a lot going on in my life. Yeah, so that material that you do, that attracts a certain niche of people. Chappelle's material attracts a larger niche of people. That doesn't mean you're bad or that you're right. not as successful. You chose your lane. 
you chose your lane. Every comedian has to choose a lane. Carrot Top, the guy gets shit on left and right. I know. He chose his lane. There is no one who does what he does in the world of comedy that I know about that's successful. There's no one more original than he is in the lane that he's done. Every single thing he creates, he invents, he put together. Unfortunately, comedians happen to be monologists, and the monologists don't like people that hold up a prop and get a laugh. But the fact is he created his lane, and millions of people have come to see right. him because he's the only one doing that lane. Well, You're I've... not the only one doing yeah. relationship humor, and that's spread out through other comedians. I went to see Chappelle at Radio City Music Hall. He invited myself and one of my sons. We all don't know how he does it, but he walked on stage and he said, in lieu of what happened in Charlottesville last night, I'm going to talk about that. And then the first 30 minutes, he was just talking about Trump and Charlottesville and I don't know where it came from. I don't know how he did it. They were standing, running around, high-fiving each other, and it was incredible. And then there was a point where he pulled out the pack of cigarettes 30 minutes later, took a drag, and you could tell that was a transition, and the last 30 was other material. I don't know why he has that skill set or how he can do it, but that's his lane. And so when you go to see him... You're not going to see relationship material. You're not going to see stuff that Chris Rock does. You're not going to see stuff that Jim Jeffries does. Why does Jim Jeffries sell the tickets he sells? Well, how many people do we know that do literally 30 minutes on gun control and make it funny? How many people do we know that imitate Oscar Petoric or whatever his name is and drag themselves across the stage and actually recreate the murder of, he does that? Jim yeah, Jeffries yes. does? He recreates oh my God, the murder that's of a model. And so to me, that's what comedians are always looking at. And for you, I look at you as an incredible success story. I have so much respect for it. I was so excited about today. Really? To, Tell me, because nobody else in the business seems to be excited. This is why I'm excited <laughs> about talking to you. Never been an industry darling, I'll tell you that. Well, Definitely always had a very hard time getting agents and managers to get excited or do anything for me. So something. I want to know why do you think that is? I will. But before <laughs> I do that, let's talk about this for a second. Okay. What percentage of all the comedians you know are industry darlings? The Jewish ones. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, think about it. That's honestly. Okay. No, I'm kidding. No, I just think when I would... Back in the day when I'd be, like, in the clubs and stuff, and really, and I, I grew up here, so I, I started doing stand-up here, which everyone told me, you can't start here. And I go, well, what am I going to do? This is where I'm from. I, you know, it was so hard to get a manager, an agent, anyone interested in you, and I would pay for, like, eight people from an agency to come because the asshole running the room wouldn't let me have eight comps. So I'd literally put $64 on a credit card so these people would come, and then they would choose the person after me to represent who'd be some like 30 year old guy and so i i'm not boo i don't want to be that person like boohoo me i mean eventually i did get representation and definitely eventually i did get jobs but it just seemed like um i don't know it was just always really hard and now i feel like um thank god for myself because i'm the only one getting myself work and my husband and my team, it's like, even though I'm at a big agency, it's like, 
you know, it's nothing. And but I don't care. I don't care as much either because I'm able to make a living still. But it's just sort of interesting. So I kind of wonder, like, I would go to my agents and my manager and I'd be like, don't you understand? I'm the only currently married female comic at this level talking about her family and being like pro marriage. Don't you think that's something that you could like get excited about? And it's like and they're always like, yeah, but then no one picks up the phone after. So why is that? (laughs) The reason why it is is because you shine a mirror on them. Every time you do something on your own that moves the needle, the mirror they look at shows that they're not moving the needle. It's a reminder of how they are not doing the job and it stings. Now, I want to share something with you. You're going to look at me and you're going to say, well, Barry, if I don't do it, I'm going to starve and I'm not going to be able to get the water (laughs) pressure fixed and I'm not going to be able to take care of my husband. Right. But some artists have to work harder and do their own things and then they have to find the team of people that are excited about you. Chances are the team of people that are around you, they're just getting their checks based on what you're doing. And a lot of times they're waiting for the shoe to drop because they can't create something or do something. And then you'll have your meeting with them Mm -hmm. and you'll say, look, it's the beginning of the year. These are the things that I'd like you guys to work on. And instead of looking them in the eye and say, hey, listen, in these next six months, okay, these are the things on my bucket list that I want to have done. Yeah. I want them to be done. I want the attention on it. I've been doing this on my own. I've made a lot of money. You've made enough money to pay for your assistance and some lunches at some nice restaurants off of what I've done. Maybe a car payment here and there. Maybe a few FedExes. Maybe I even helped your Christmas bonus. Yeah. So in these next six months, you're going to help me. And these are the things that I want done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. At the end of the six months, I'm going to look at this list with you and we're going to meet again. And if things aren't the way I need them to be, I'm going to make a change because I respect you. I'm having this meeting with you and I'm doing that. And a lot of artists don't like conflicts. So that's yes. why artists <laughs> normally fire their agents over a text or their manager right. over an email because they just can't bear to have the conversation like they would with your husband. If your husband and you are having problems, you're not going to text him and say, it's over. Yeah. You're going to sit down and say, look, these are the things that I'm unhappy with. Right. Okay. And I'd like these things to change so we can create a better relationship together. And if we can't do that, then we got to talk about maybe not having a relationship anymore that is really important to do and definitely as you get older you're like you get it you know it's like I used to i used to go into casting offices and think that they were sort of against me and it took a long time for me to realize no they want you to be right for the part they want you to be and it took me so long to realize that so i always tell younger people like no they want they want you to be it like they're behind you don't let the nervousness come from them. I mean, people get nervous no matter what. But like, but it took me like kind of a long time to realize that. And then now I'm kind of, now I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I just like, I see it for what it is. And I, I part of me gets angry and, and is like, come on already, you know. And then another part's like, oh, f- oh fuck it. Like, who cares? Like, I, I don't necessarily don't want, I don't want to be agentless. But like, at the same time, I'm like so over it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm so over it because I'm like, 
I don't need to be recognized at Target. I don't. It's fun when I do. I like it. It's definitely gone down since I haven't been on TV regularly in three years. But, like, I don't have to have that. Like, as long as, like, I'm getting the love from the podcast and people writing me and enjoying, like, my Facebook Lives and going to see me live, I'm like... And that was why I did the podcast. I looked at all the guys that, that you, you know, were talking about, Jay Moore and them. Jay Moore's always worked and been an actor and is a face. But I'm saying, like, I looked at certain guys that... um hadn't really been on TV at all and were like killing it in the podcast game and like selling out on a Tuesday night. And that I was like, oh, this guy has a popular podcast. I was remember exactly the club I was in, this club in Texas. And I go, what's his deal? And he's like, oh, he'll sell this plate. He'll make $10,000 on a Tuesday night. And the next day I'm like, uh, I'm starting a podcast. And I, I had no idea that it would become this. I had no clue. And now it's just like this kind of freedom of like, I don't need to be on some dumb show on a panel for $400. If it's going to be this much effort to get it, I don't need to put on eyelashes for that. Fuck it. You did know. I did my eyelashes for you, of course. But but I'm <laughs> saying did, like... You did know that it was going to be successful. No, I didn't know. No one goes forward with a risk thinking that it's not going to happen. You don't take risks if you don't have in the back of your brain that you can do it and make it happen. That's why people don't take risks is because they're afraid that nothing's going to happen. So they stay on the sidelines and nothing happens. You took the risk. I I will just say I was pleasantly surprised because when it started, I didn't really know how many people were listening and I didn't want to ask. Like I used to get like a a college paper. When I went to SC, I'd get like my college paper back, right? And I'd put it in my backpack and I'd ride my bike back to my sorority house and I'd wait like a day and a half to look at the grade. Like it would stress me out so much. So I kind of in the beginning was like I wasn't really asking, you know, how many people are listening. And I wasn't noticing like a big bump in my social media. So I really didn't think people were listening. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. But I was enjoying the process of doing it. And I loved like going since I produced and wrote Chelsea Lately for seven years. I liked kind of preparing and knowing I had a place to go at least one day a week. So that's kind of why I was doing it. And then I was, I was really surprised with the response. Then it became this thing that I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm, if I would even, if something once in a while, a podcast would go up late or something and I'd wake up to like these mean tweets, not mean, but like, how, where is Juicy Scoop? I'm on the, I'm on the train and it's not here. And then I was like, oh my God, I, these people are like dependent on me. Like I was crack or something. So then I, then I just was like, well, I can't let anyone down. And I'm, you know, other people take three weeks off during the holidays. I'm like, you know, no, I've got to make sure I have enough. Or if it's going to be a repeat, I have a fresh open and you know, and even then I would get a couple meanies about the repeats. And I was like, I'm sorry, did you write every network on television and yell at them for having repeats? Like, can I, I can't like, I can't like go to Christmas Eve mass without you like yelling at me. Like, so, um, but it's been great. Like, I really am so appreciative of like the, the podcast listener because it's a very loyal listener because it's part of their routine. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. 
with exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I'm really, really excited about my new sponsor, BarkBox. For humans, BarkBox is a delivery service of up to four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around the surprise theme every month. But for dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. Every month, BarkBox paw picks the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, your dog's needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences. All edibles are made in the U.S. or Canada, and they give free shipping on any BarkBox within the continental United States. Even if you don't own a dog, give the gift that keeps on giving with a BarkBox subscription box. I got this product for my dog Lila, a Labradoodle. I can't even begin to tell you how wonderful it was and how happy my dog was. And your dog or your friend's dogs will be just as happy as mine. And you can get a free month of BarkBox if you just subscribe to a 6 or a 12 month plan. Just go to BarkBox.com slash B-A-R-R-Y That's BarkBox.com B-A-R-K-B-O-X dot com slash Barry and get that free extra month. Enjoy it and your dog or your friend's dogs will love you more than you could ever imagine. As a manager, to me, it seems simple. Granted, look, I've been fortunate to represent some amazing people, some of the greatest experiences of my life. I've been hired and fired by some of the most amazing people, and I luckily still remain friends with the ones that I'm with and the ones that I'm not with. But when I look at it, being a manager is just taking your bucket list and checking off the things off the bucket list. Now, granted, I could check off everything with my talent and yours that you want, but you might feel uncomfortable with the way I do business or or how we interact together. You might be thrilled with everything that's happened, but maybe the relationship isn't right. It's like everything else. Mm-hmm. The most horrible thing to me is that somebody like Chappelle or Tracy Morgan or or somebody, Dane Cook, would sit down with somebody and say, yeah, that Barry Katz, he's a horrible manager. He didn't, he didn't make any of my, my goals come true. That would be devastating. Mm-hmm. So every time I'm working with somebody, the key is to, to make things happen, even if it doesn't work out and you don't, the relationship doesn't continue, at least they're out in the world saying, hey, this is what happened and I'm grateful for it. For me, 
as a manager, let's say if I was working with you, it would just be the list. You give me the list. This is what I want, Barry. I'm only getting five auditions for film and television a year. I'd like that to be 30. Okay, then you'll get 30. But I would go toe-to-toe with you and say, hey, listen, you got to go in those rooms and blow people away. I don't care if they're looking for a 500-pound black woman and you're in there and they say, well, we want to see Heather. It's just going in and blowing people away. I remember Chappelle, I drove him to the Nutty Professor audition. And I remember he had misplaced the script. Now he was a kid. Yeah. You know, so that's not a bad thing. It's like what any kid would do. He's just a young kid. And he was afraid to do the audition because the audition was like a combination of a Def Jam comic. Right. And a comic who he revered, who I used to represent along with Dave, Charlie Barnett, who was the greatest street performer of all time. And Dave, you know, to the last minute, I don't know if I want to go in. Again, the risk of going in and failing. Yeah. Was somebody else's material in front of Tom Shadiak, one of the greatest comedy directors of all time. And I remember right before he went in, it was this amazing thing that happened. He made a choice. He said, get me a white towel. I'm on a lot at Universal. He's like, get me a white towel. Can you get me a white towel? I said, a white towel? He said, trust me. And I got him this white towel and he went in there and he channeled. Where did you get the white towel first? I had to go to a laundry place on Universal, like run run back to where the laundromat was, where they do stuff. And, oh, my God. Okay. And he had the towel around his neck and he, he told me after what he did was it was to wipe the sweat, you know, the, yeah. the fake sweat off his brow. And he pulled his pants down right before he went in all the way down to where his crotch was and lifted his boxers all the way up yeah. and created this Def Jam character that was part Def Jam and part Charlie Barnett, which is a guy who would do anything in Washington Square Park to get that laugh and to get the money from the right. crowd. And he came out and that night we got the call from Tom Shadiak that he got the gig, the last person that went in. But he took the risk. I think what I was saying about what I have so much respect for you, again, that list as a manager, it's easy to do the things I believe because I look at it like I want an artist to look at things. I want an artist to look at whatever it is I present in front of them and say, listen, your family is being held hostage and you're getting the call. If you don't get this gig... You'll never see your family again. Right. Now, I can guarantee you if every artist is took that the guy attack, Liam, Is that guy Liam Neeson? I don't know. I don't do impressions, but you're good at them. Celine Dion, <laughs> Drew Barrymore, I can't do any. So <laughs> the fact is, and I know it sounds kind of drastic, but let's say we set one of the goals is that you're going to write a sitcom for yourself, a new one, not mm-hmm. something you wrote. And in a month, I need it done so I can submit it and get it around to all the networks that, for development and this kind of thing. You might say, I, I, a month? I've never written this script in a month. I can't. But if you had the sense of urgency to do right. it, you would do it. And I think that's one of the things. And when I look at you in the podcast, you created something from nothing. Zero. 
you created this whole thing. You're going all over the country. People love you. They, they rally around you from nothing. And so if you look at every aspect, the book, the book was nothing. There was no book. And then you sat down and said, I'm doing the book. And then there's something. The special. There's nothing, Heather. And then you make the decision, I'm doing this special. I'm working on this material and I'm going to do this special. And then there's a special. So every aspect of your career, it doesn't matter about agents or these people that don't do anything because (laughs) you're going to have the sense of urgency for everything you want. You think Aziz Ansari, who just won the Golden Globe, was sitting back saying, eh, you know, I'm writing the script. Nobody's going to read my script. No one's going to... No one's going to want to buy something from me. I mean, look at me. I'm just, I'm not like everybody else. Uh, But he did it. He wrote it. He made it happen. Look at Louis C.K. And and let's not get into what happened to him. Let's just look at the Louis C.K. that I know. Well, he was my first client ever that I ever represented. An amazing artist. He had the little beige Mac box, Apple computer, the first one to have it. He was always working, always creating, always writing. And he got the HBO show. He enlisted a lot of his friends to be in the show with him. And it was one of the few HBO shows that ever got canceled after this one. This is the first one where he like that, lived in the sad right. apartment. That's right. It was the like the honeymooners yeah. kind yes. of movie. So... Here he is, he gets on HBO, a network like Netflix at the time. Right, everyone that loved never it, yeah. canceled anything, <laughs> ever, except his show. And six years went by of trying to put things together and people saying no over and over and over again, going to comedy clubs and not selling out, wondering if his career was over, but still pushing forward, moving forward, and writing and creating. Yes, people are going to say no. It's, it happens. And then he went out with Louis. Every single place said no, except for FX. And John Langraff at FX, essentially, you would think would say no, because he said, Louis, I can't do this show the way you want to do it. Maybe I can find uh, $325,000 an episode If you want to do it for that in New York, you can do it. Now, to give you perspective on $325,000 for a sitcom, Whitney Cummings' show was $1.7 million an episode on a good day. That was the NBC sitcom. Yeah, that's on a good day uh, and much more after that. So here he's doing 10 episodes for essentially what it would take to do 10 episodes. I don't know, I can't do the math right now, but the fact is, is that he had to direct them. He had to write each one. He had to do the music for each one. He was even editing them. He was doing the graphics and the titles at times. Every artist that he had the book on, it couldn't be a regular. They had to be a guest shot for $935.50 or whatever it was. But he created something was special. And for anybody that listens, and, and when I sit across from you, I think of you as somebody who has the gene to manifest things to happen. And so I think of the final episode of 
one season. It was called Fat Girl. And there was oh, a yeah, seven and a half minute scene where he's on the uh, river walk uh, overlooking the Statue of Liberty. It's right. one camera, one take, him and her. And maybe they did it 12 times. Maybe mm. they did nine times and they took one take. But it's one take. And he wrote it, yet he gave her most of the lines. Mm -hmm. But he felt comfortable in what he was doing and the way the scene. And it was a socially relevant scene that was so powerful. I could watch that over and over again. And that actress was incredible, too. Well, interesting little side note on that story is that I shared an office with Fortune Feimster. And I read those lines with her because during the time we were at Chelsea Lately, she got the audition. And she had to go downstairs to, like, this private room to go do a FaceTime audition with Louie. And then when she and then when she didn't get it, you know, when we watched it, you know, you both agree. No, she wasn't. Th that girl was the right girl for it, you know, but it was kind of it was very exciting that she even got to read for it. Absolutely. And so when you look at that as an artist or any artist listening to the show, you know that you can do that. It's one camera. It's one take. That's one third of an episode. And everybody's capable of writing great things to their point of view. Maybe it's not that kind of writing and that kind of thing. Who would have thought a 51-year-old guy or however old he is is able to write extraordinary dialogue for a woman? Mm -hmm. But he did it. So he got on the air and he created material that second time that the world said, yes, we're going to watch this. We didn't want to watch you on the other one because right. we didn't like that material. Right. But we liked this material. Judd Apatow failed eight times in a row before he got something going. Mm -hmm. And so when I sit across from you, the reason why I'm so inspired, and I'm sorry I'm going into this diatribe here. No. Another thing that you did that, that shows that you're capable of anything in the navigational world of this business is you got the gig at Chelsea, mm -hmm. okay? Now, if Chelsea were sitting here across from me, <laughs> I know that she would agree with me when I say on the graph of the easiest people to understand and grasp of how to navigate around is over on the left. And one of the most challenging and interesting and unique people to figure out and how to navigate around would be on the right. She'd be farther to the right. She's somebody who is a very complex person. There's a simplicity to what she puts out there to make it so it's relatable and graspable to the American public. But she's a very complex, incredible business person. And you go into that office that first day, and there's a lot of people in that office that worked on that show. There are some people that came and went from that show, but you stayed you stayed year after year after year, even to the admission that you were invited to the parties and then you got stopped getting invited to the parties, which is which that's even a greater accomplishment because an artist wants to feel safe. They want the people around them that they feel safe around. It could be argued that when you went to the parties and you were the only married person, she didn't feel as safe. 
but she still wanted you around all the time professionally on the show. And then when she started doing concerts, who did she choose to open up? Let's look at the list of people in the beginning. That's kind of an interesting story about taking advantage of opportunities that you realize might not come around again. And so when I started working on the show, um, I hadn't worked on anything for years. And I'd just gotten back into stand-up because I started watching Last Comic Standing and it made me kind of miss it. But I really didn't miss it. For the years that I stopped, I was having kids. I was still booking stuff here and there. I always had agents. And I was selling real estate and I had my cute little house in Woodland Hills. And, you know, my husband had a normal job and I was, like, really happy. And there's so many times that I'm like, God, I thought I was happy then, but I'm much happier now. Like, I didn't even realize, like, I wasn't happy, but I, I didn't have any sting that I wasn't, like, pursuing all I should be pursuing. Then I started watching Last Comic Standing, and I'm like, God, I really do kind of miss stand-up. Because I didn't ever hung out at the clubs or anything, really, after I was married. And it was far, and so I kind of just stopped doing it. And then, um, so then when I started doing stand-up again, I m met her, you know, we knew who each other was. But I started doing these shows, seeing her, I found out she was doing this show, and my friend goes, um, oh, it's going to be five days a week. I don't want to work on that because my friend was working on the one day a week show. And I said, well, I'm, I'm 37. I need to get a regular gig now or I'm never going to get one. And so I reached out to her and I wrote a whole packet in her voice. And and I think she was like a little surprised just because we were, you know, we were all at the time going out for the the same part. So I think she was sort of surprised that I would be so humble to want to write for someone else. But I never felt that way. I, was, I loved a collaborative effort. I was just thrilled to be writing something that was in my vein of interest, you know, which was pop culture and fun and a girl. And I'm like, well, if I can write for the Waynes Brothers, who are black men, I can write for like a drunk, blonde 32-year-old easily. You know, that's way easier for me to write. And just for so, my audience, what she's referring to is she was a co-writer on White Chicks. The yeah, so we're, we worked on some several stuff with them, which I love them, and they're awesome. So I just kind of was like, okay. And, um, and so then we started doing the show, and it was really fun. I just, I loved it. It was not stressful at all and really fun. And then... Early on, she was like, do you want to open for me at Spotlight 29 in Palm Desert? How many people from the show had she asked to open up for her up until that moment? No one, because um, I was the only staff writer that... Um, I was the only staff writer that, like, was a stand-up. Later on, she did start having other people open her for... Which, at, for, at a, for a minute, I felt sort of jealous, and then I was like, no, she has to spread the wealth, you know? But in the very beginning, she asked me, and um, and the date, the minute she said the date, I thought, "Holy shit, I'm hosting a baby shower <laughs> for my very best friend." And I said, "Yes, I can do it. Yes, I can do it." And she's like, "It's like just do like 20 minutes." Now I had just gotten back into stand up. I don't think I had more than 10 minutes, but I'm like, "Oh, I'll come up with 20 minutes within three weeks or whatever this was." I stressed out so bad having to tell my friend that I was not going to be there for the baby shower. And to the point where I then it was during the recession, the 2007, eight like recession. And I literally had to write my friend and I said, you know, Peter's a mortgage broker. This is our income. And if she doesn't ask, if I don't do this gig, I feel like she's going to ask someone else like a Natasha Legero, who would be a great opener for her as well. And that girl's going to get all the next gigs. 
And I'm like, so I'm taking the first one and I'm going to kill it. And I, I hope we can be friends after this. I'm not choosing her as a friend. I'm choosing a way to support my family of five, you know? And so my friend forgave me. We're still best friends. And, but it was one of those things where I realized, and I think that's a really important thing when people do pass on things, you know, like be careful about you, what you pass on, you know, because it, it could mean, you know, so I was, so then I did it and Ted goes, oh my God, Ted Harbert, oh my God, you're the perfect opener for Chelsea. Cause she'd had other girls kind of similar to her open. I'm single, I'm drinking, I'm dating. And my was a similar point of view and sense of, you know, a similar sense of humor, but a different point of view. So he goes, you're the perfect opener for Chelsea. If you didn't have all your kids, we'd bring you on the road every week. And I go, you can bring me on the road every week. You can bring me on, ask me every single time because my husband will watch the kids. And, and, I'm, and I still, I missed out on a lot of like kid things during those years. And I'm, I like that I'm home with them a lot more now. And I almost feel like these might be the more important years to be totally honest than the baby years, you know, because now my kids are 15 and 11 and, you know, and I'm with them a lot more and involved. But, um, but it was hard decisions and guilt and, all of that to like miss the play and miss the baseball game and be that one mother that everybody's like, and you come on campus and they go, what are you doing here? Stranger? You're not working today. I go, no, I'm working. And they're like, Oh, you have no makeup on. I'm like, no, I actually do bitch. Like it was just, you know, but if, if my husband was there, it was like, Oh, Peter, the greatest dad on earth. You know what I'm like? Well, he's a dad. Like, what? You want a fucking medal because he showed up to pick up the kid from school? Like, but as a woman, you will will always um, be harder on ourselves and treat ourselves differently because it's just we're different human beings than men. You know, it's not to say that a guy's a less great dad than a mom, but it's like no matter how far we come, you you feel guilty about missing stuff, you know. But you also made it. You had 10 minutes of material. You got a gig. You had a certain amount of time to get your 20. Right. The sense of urgency. And you made it happen again. I'm very good with deadlines. So it's like, I'm always like, I would have never written a book had someone not given me a deal. And and same with like doing the three chapters to get the deal. My agent was like, I got to have it by this time. And I remember it was like Mother's Day. And I went and got a coffee at like a midnight. I worked all night sent it in before I did this like Mother's Day baseball game with my kids. And I was just like, let me just, you know, so I do well at that. I was the person that stayed up, you know, to write the paper and all that. But I I hate it too. I hate that stress of a big project looming over your head. But it is the most satisfying thing when you press send. One of the things I hear you mention a lot, which really shocks me, is guilt and stress. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I've never really sat across from anybody that was really successful that has guilt and stress over <laughs> and over again because guilt and stress and success don't go together, but they they somehow are going together with you. Every single thing that you've stressed out about, if you think back on it, it always worked out. Right. So the pattern is that every single thing that you've ever stressed about when you look down the line, it always worked out, yet the next time you're still stressing, even knowing that it works out. Yeah. So why do you keep the pattern of the stress when you know every single time it works out? I, I, 
I think this. I think I definitely had a lot more stress. Um, though it was a really joyful time in my life, um, I did have stress when I was on Chelsea because I could be fired. And so I don't have that kind of stress now, which I like. Did you ever feel when you came in one day or there was a week or a period of time where the notices where you knew were going to come out that you thought, you know, I didn't exceed Chelsea's expectations. She's going to let me go. No, because unfortunately... Um, it wasn't like that. It, it could just be that she didn't want to see your face in the meeting anymore. And you wouldn't really know why that person was asked to leave. And that's the so, thing that I respect you so much. And what I was talking about earlier is you figured out a way to navigate with her to where she felt safe. There's people in her life, and you know all the stories, and I'm not going to get into all the stories. Well, I'm not in her life anymore. I know. There's people that were in her life that she'd take on the road and they'd be a part of situations with her that could never be spoken of or talked mm-hmm. about. And she had that trust and faith in them that they would protect her. And she felt that way about you when you were on the show. Now, you may not be in her life anymore. Mm-hmm. So you may mm-hmm. never even know what that reason is because mm-hmm. artists are not confronting people. Mm-hmm. So one day you just don't know. And right. they're afraid to talk about it. And you're like wondering your whole life, what did I do? But the whole thing is, is that with her, the greatest thing is regardless if somebody's in your life or not in your life anymore, the world also gives you chapters and people to rally around in your life for certain periods of time. There's all sorts of people like that in your life. There's dry cleaners that you went to for eight years that you loved (laughs) and then you stopped going to the dry cleaner, went to another dry cleaner and the dry cleaner's like, where? I wonder where Heather is. And we don't think about those things because we're like, well, that's the dry cleaner. But when it's Chelsea Handler, you're like, what happened? My my mom would always say no one's indispensable, you know, and everyone's disposable. And uh, and in being in her working for all those years, I saw we all we we sometimes openly talk about how she just cuts people out and there's no coming back. And so I. You know, I remember one time, one of the first times she said, do you want to come to the Tonight Show with me? I'm going to be on. Oh, my God, we're in a limo. We're going to the Tonight Show. Like, this is like, you know, a couple months within the show. And um, she's talking about firing a manager and uh, and the way she was talking about him. And I felt sort of bad for the guy because he'd gotten her the show and whatnot. And I said, well, if you ever get tired of me, will you let me know? And she said, oh, you'll know, Heather, you'll know. And, it was, you know, so then I always kind of knew that day. And there, there are times it came very close to that. And somehow I would just survive. And people came up to me after, like, I can't believe you survived for seven years. I'm like, I survived, honestly, because I had to. I had kids in private school. I had a home. I, I tried to get other jobs on the side. I tested for things at 8 a.m. in the morning that I didn't get. I tried to get something else. But I wasn't going to quit. I wasn't going to quit. And then a year later, not have anything and go, you're such a fucking idiot. You quit or throw a fit and 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 have that haunt me. So I was like, all right. Yeah. You know, I'm never getting a raise. I'm not getting asked to guest host people. You know, I'm being not treated the way I think I should be treated. But I still was like, it's Writers Guild money. I'm home by seven. 
you know, and I get to be on TV and I'm a woman in my 40s and I get to do funny things that come very easy and naturally to me. It wasn't like never coming up with the, the material and coming up with the comedy. That was so easy and so natural and fun. That was never like a stress that I would maybe have on something else. So that was like sort of um, that, that is the truth. You know, it's like sometimes people keep a job because they have to. You keep a job because you have to. But chances are you showed up on time or early. Chances are you put the hours in. Right. You might even stay later some nights when she needed you to. You did great work. And you exceeded her expectations. And when she was around you, you made her feel safe. And that's what everybody wants. And just so our audience knows what Heather's talking about, about Writers Guild money, Writers Guild money, even on a uh, daily talk show like that, like on a sitcom, the minimum for a lowest level writer on a sitcom, I think, is 4200 And on a yeah. talk show, it's between 29 and $3,400 yeah, uh, a week, or which something. is, you know, and then you get benefits and all that kind of stuff. And especially when nowadays with health insurance, you know, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, that's like 2000 a month for a family of five. So it's like, you know, it's just like anything else. People think because you're on TV, you're like loaded. You're not, but you need to keep that coming to survive, you know, and these and the jobs are hard to come from. So sometimes when I shared about it in the past and then I'd see these people that are on daytime, it was actually a topic. And these daytime people were there talking on the shows about me saying, why don't you just quit? I was like, excuse me, bitch, who's making five million a year to work three hours a day. You know, you're you're on the talk talking about me that I should quit my I should have quit my job because I went on a podcast and was honest about the experience. I can't be honest about the experience now. And everyone's like, you should have quit. Like you try, you know what? Like, I just don't think, you know, I just think when you're it's that that attitude of where people don't recognize what other people are going through. And I'm like, I wouldn't tell someone to quit if they worked at Target if they didn't like it until they got a job somewhere else. Like, what are you talking about? You just quit. Never quit a job in my fucking life. Like, I'm not going to quit a job. Like, I just don't. So it was was an interesting experience. And now being like three years later and going this. But it took a long time for me to, like, recover from that. I definitely think people turn for like a year and a half. You know, I I was banned from certain shows and things because they thought that Chelsea and I were like at war and by hiring me, you might piss her off her and not that she would be like that. But, you know, it was a hard thing then to fix what one one thing that you can say then make such a big deal. And now I know that if I ever got in that situation, a better way to react and what I would counsel someone to is like immediately Immediately address it, immediately apologize, get it out there, seal it, squash it. But I didn't know what to do. And so I kind of like hoped that it would go away and it kind of blew. And then when and then once I had the the audience of my own podcast and I then I have spoken about it more and I really don't care. And I love that it's about truth and honesty nowadays because that's all I am. But it took a long time to feel it took a long time to realize that. Like that those instances that happened were meant to happen. It took years for me to realize because I'm like, had I not had my breakup with Chelsea, if when she started her Netflix show, we were on decent terms and she called me to work on it at that time when that show started, 
I don't think I'd even, I may have just started my podcast, but it wasn't successful. It wasn't making money. I would have dropped my fucking podcast in a hot second and worked on her show. The world has a way of putting you where you're supposed to right. go. And then two years later, she's not doing the show anymore. And I would have been like, no, I'm going to, you know, and start, and I would have been even in a worse position, three years older with nothing of my own. And even known more as like Chelsea's sidekick, whatever. So I suggest you send her a fruit basket thanking her for the podcast. <laughs> you know, I feel like what, you know, it all, it all works out. It's unfortunate in that, you know, it's just with a friend of mine and they're engaged and they're from the show and talking about who's going to be invited to the wedding. And it's, we're all friends from Chelsea lately. We're all in touch. We all do each other's shows. We're all happy for each other. And she's the one that brought us together. And I don't know. To be totally honest, it makes me kind of sad for her a little bit. I'm sure she's skiing in the Swiss Alps with her $100 million and is not thinking about me and talking to you at all. But there's a part of me that's like, oh, that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a bummer in a little way. But, you know. I remember I had a conversation with Buddy Hackett right before he died. He used to call me all the time and he'd say, hey, pal. And he'd tell me a joke every day on the mm -hmm. phone. One of the greatest comedians of my or any generation. For those of you who don't know, Buddy Hackett was making $175,000 a week in Vegas in 1953. That so, sounds nice. So he was really successful. So, But the point I'm trying to make is one day he called me and he said, you sound a little down, pal. And I said, well, you know, I, Buddy, I, I was on the phone with this person and I was negotiating and they told me to fuck off and they hung up on me and I... I just been thinking about it all day long. And he said, pal, every time you're thinking about that and getting on your mind and down, you know what they're doing right now? Nobody, what are they doing? They're partying their ass off. They're not thinking about you. They don't give a fuck. They're not <laughs> thinking about anything. So stop thinking about them. That gives them right. power. And so for you... What you had with Chelsea was extraordinary. And if somebody were to tell you long ago, right before you got that gig, that you were going to have seven or eight years run like that with her, and but it was going to end after eight years, and you weren't going to necessarily know exactly why or how things went down, and you were going to feel uneasy about it, you would have taken that job a hundred out of a hundred times. Oh, when I got the job, I had to hire my nanny to be full time because I only just had like a part time. I split her with another girl down the street. My son was a year and a half, my younger son. And I thought, well, it'll be canceled in 13 weeks. The guarantee is for 13 weeks. It'll be canceled after that. But at least I'll have a credit. Maybe it'll lead to something else. Literally, that's what I thought. It's like the opposite of the secret. It's like <laughs> like the negative. Like, And so then when it was successful, yeah. You know, and then even when she left, you know, and we, were, we had a really good time in Vegas, one of the last, you know, times that a bunch of us went to Vegas. And she was, you know, it was ending. She's leaving. And I didn't understand why, how the leaving happened. Now I do. I have better knowledge of what really went down. I just thought she hated doing the show and um, and just didn't like talking about, you know, the the pop culture stuff anymore. And I but I did say to her, I go, thank you for thank you for quitting, because I would have never quit. I would have never quit. And I I know I knew I was bound for greater things and being on a panel and writing on a show and never getting a raise and never getting an EP credit, nothing. 
So I never, the amount that I made on the day that I left is what someone would have made if they got hired the day before. And I was there for seven years. And when you talk about equality and gender and all that stuff that people talk about, I, I take the side of, I didn't fight for it. I, the, th- my, my, the most annoying thing that happened to me, which is every working woman should hear this story, is um, I was the only mom at the time that we all got hired. A couple guys had babies as we went on, but I was the only one that had kids when we walked in. And I never played the mom card. I never said, can I leave at 4.30 to go to a play, okay? I just, that's life. My kids know I'm not coming. And then Josh Wolf got hired. And uh, his kid was about 14 at the time. And he left all the fucking time for those baseball games. And they, they'd, he'd be like, Jacob has a game. I'm out. And they'd be like, goodbye, Josh. God, the greatest dad ever. Isn't he a delight? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I'd called in. First of all, you're supposed to have seven six days, sick days a year. I called in sick. Two times in seven years. Two times. I never, because I'm like, they can't, you know. I And the day that I remember, one day I called in sick because it was like a non-tape day. And I'll be honest, I had the last bit of my book due. And I'm like, I'm going to call in sick this Friday. We're not taping. Because I never got sick. I made sure I never got sick. So it's like, I was like, oh, my God, and these other guys, they would use every day. My baby's sick. You know, Diablo has a thing, you know, because one guy was married to Diablo Cody. He was sick so fucking much. And I was like, oh, my God. But I, I just thought, geez, I can't piss them off. I can't, you know, I, I don't want them to, work, you know, think that I'm doing something on the side. So it was that kind of thing that, like, drove me. And I look back and I'm like, holy shit, why didn't I? And then I just remember about a year after the show was over, I said something. And my son was about 12 at the time. And he goes, God, are you still afraid of Chelsea Handler? <laughs> and I go, oh, my God, I am. Like, they had seen me, you know, for so many years and the way I would talk about things. And I was like, and it's not, and then what I want to say, it's like not her fault. You know, nothing she did. It was how I I chose not to sit down and go, hey, you want me to stay on this? I'm going to, if we're not taping, I'm going to be there for my kid. If um, if it's if I'm give you a week's two weeks notice, I'm gonna be late for a morning meeting because my kid's doing a poetry reading. I never did that, and I never said, "Hey, I've been here for three years. You're gonna make me a co-EP, or I'm leaving." I never did that because I was afraid they'd say, "Okay, you don't seem happy. Bye." That which they could have done, which is what happened to Cat Sadler. So, you know, it's a risk that you take, and I feel like, hey, sometimes guys, they have literal balls sometimes they have bigger balls than than we do and and it's your confidence and your you know and so uh, i used to complain to my husband he goes then go in there and say you want to be a co-ep and i was like go in there and say why am i not the guest host and if you don't make me a guest host i'm gonna leave and i was like oh my god no way there's no way i could do it but there are ways of going in to ask for what you want without saying i want this or i'm leaving Right. There's right. ways of going in, and, and that's what normally managers and agents can help you with that have no tangible thing and tied to the job. Right. But it's like they can help you. Well, at the time, my manager had dumped me two weeks before me getting the job. So what was great is I never paid anyone any commission on anything. But at the same time, I was like, I didn't have that 
like, hey, negotiate me a little more this year. You know, so it was, it. you know, and then once I was like halfway in and I was like, well, I'm not going to bring someone in now, you know, that who I barely know and I've worked this whole thing. And but it's true. It's like so I say to the, the when people talk about gender equality in Hollywood, I I, I say, I, I'm sorry, I disagree. I understand if you're at a factory and the man's making a dollar and you're making 73 cents. But I think it's different in Hollywood because it's a creative thing. And we had a writer that um, was a brilliant writer, but he would take naps and he would take meetings. But um, if it was me, I would have kept him because I thought he was more talented than the rest of us. And somehow the EPs didn't like, you know, kind of got on it. And I think they sort of were honestly threatened by how talented he was, some of the higher ups. Because there was a time when um, someone was missing and it was him, not the EP, that got to be on the floor because Chelsea knew how talented he was. And um, and they let him go. And I was just like, you know, I just think some. I don't I just don't think it's like it's not like we're all engineers or something or not that engineers are special talents, too. But I'm saying like it's not like like I just think there's different talents and there's stuff that you'll put up with with one person than you should. And there's other ones where you're like, all right, dude, like you're not that great. And sometimes you got to reverse roles yeah. and, and put yourself in the position of the person and think, what could that person say to me that would make me say, hey, I, that makes sense. I'd love them to be a co-EP. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I'd love to give them a guest spot uh, mm-hmm. hosting. The way they presented it to me, I, I like that. That argument makes sense and it's not threatening. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names to you, and I want you to tell me what comes to mind. It could be a word. It could be a sentence, a story, uh, whatever it might be. Sean and Marlon Wayans. Delights. It was, you know, working with them and going uh, to Keenan's house to write White Chicks. We also wrote another movie that was shelved prior to that. and And then I did punch up on some other stuff. They are stunningly good looking They're You always get to hug their perfect bodies. They're ageless. And I love that, um, that they're truly a family and they're brothers and there's no jealousy and there's no, um, they really support each other's projects. And I coming from someone who is estranged from my couple of my siblings, I really admired that that was never the case with them as a family. And I thought that says a lot about their parents and Keenan. The other Heather McDonald. The other Heather MacDonald, by the way, it's M-A-C, not M-C, is a conservative writer who's written books like Blue Lives Matter. And so when she goes to speak on certain campuses, there's riots and everything. And so I get a lot of Google alerts for her, Google alerts, and I get tweets, hate, hate, very hateful tweets. And I'll be like, I am the comedian, you know? And sometimes I'd get the Google and it's like, Heather McDonald's show was canceled. And I'm like, wait, what? Oh, no, it's, you know, it's her, her whatever show that she can't do at Berkeley or something. So I've seen her. She's not nearly as attractive as I am. And <laughs> good, good luck for her. I'm sure she's got many fans, but she has a lot of haters. And so please, haters, don't come for me. I, I yeah. <laughs> I know you're going to seem like this is deja vu. The other Heather McDonald. Who's the other one? Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. Believe it or not, that was somebody who I knew before she did that audition. She was an improv actress, came into my office, and I don't know, we talked about some words of wisdom before the audition. I saw I saw that movie with my husband when we were dating. <laughs> I thought it was great. Um, I remember seeing her on a talk show and hearing her whole story. Um, and it, it's very interesting because the reason, the way I got my name is that my mom was pregnant with the fifth child. She was at a swim meet. She'd run out of naming the people after Irish relatives. And she heard Heather McDonald. There's some girl, eight years old, named Heather McDonald. And she thought, that sounds good. So it's kind of a great name, I guess, to put together. And um, But I, I talk about um, that I want to start a charity called Heathers for Heathers. It's keeping Heathers hot for... <laughs> generations to come because there's not a lot of new heathers being born there's a lot of heathers between like 35 and 40 or 50 you know heather locklear being one of the oldest ones and then so it's like uh yeah so i when i girls come to my shows they say i'm pregnant and i go are you but it's a boy so i'm not gonna name it heather but i promise but I have not had anybody come and tell me that they're actually naming their daughter heather so i keep working towards it I will, whoever names their daughter Heather, who's a Juicy Scooper, I will send a very generous baby gift to. Chelsea Handler. Extreme confidence, you know, and, and no, definitely a no regret kind of person for sure. Your proudest moment in show business. Um, there's a couple. I mean, definitely having a stand, a one hour stand up special is something that every comedian dreams about. I definitely thought at a certain point in my life. It would not happen, and I was okay with that. And um, so to have the Netflix special go, I'd love to have another one. Um, and then I, I really think the podcast is the second proudest moment, like that the success of it going and and people now saying, like, oh, I listen to Juicy Scoop. They don't go, oh, you're the girl from Chelsea Lately, or, you know, they're like, oh, my God, you know, come up to me and say, I listen to Juicy Scoop. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, that's just... That and anybody that reads your book is very flattering. Anyone that's written a book and someone comes up and says, I read your book, you're like, wow. Because nowadays that's a commitment to read a book. So it means a lot when someone reads your book. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Biggest disappointment in show business. Oof. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I've sold a couple shows that didn't make it, but I never felt like I did anything wrong with that, you know? Um, I don't I don't know that I have, like, one. I mean, I've had, like, stand-up nights that I was like, meh, that was a six and a half, you know? Or I should have, why was I talking to people in the green room when I should have been going over my stuff a little bit better? Or you flub up a word or... Um, you know, I, I don't feel like any audition that I have, I feel if I flubbed it up, I wouldn't have gotten in it. You know, like it didn't really matter. So, um, yeah, I guess I would say that. Like just, just any kind of stand-up thing where I felt like I, I blew it off. I didn't think it was as big of a deal. That's what I can say. There's been several where I'm like, I kind of like, oh, I don't think this is that big of a deal. And then I get there and I'm like, I can't believe that I didn't prepare a little bit more from this you're you're fucking lazy idiot you know and that doesn't happen a lot but the few times that it does i get really mad because i do take everything pretty you know seriously and professionally 
Last question. What advice would you have for the young person who's in a day job, maybe married with another person that has a day job, wants to get into the business and figure out a way to move the needle and to create the kind of lanes and career that you have? Well, I think what's amazing about today's world is that we have the Internet. And you don't have to necessarily get up at the Gross Comedy Club and wait for three hours on Sunset to do your three minutes to be seen or heard. I also want to say, though, don't put your stand-up out there when you've only done three minutes. And that's really hard. I've told people that several times, and they immediately start posting their stand-up everywhere. And I'm like... I remember the first time I did stand-up, I talked to an, my friend goes, call Omnipop. You were amazing. I did a six-week class. At the end, I did the Santa Monica Improv. So Omnipop I, was an agency yeah. in Long Island at the time. Coastal and were an agency that helped people book jobs all over the country. Now they do everything. Yeah. So I called the guy. Somehow I got the main dude on the phone. Bruce Dave, Smith. Bruce Smith. And I said, you know, oh, I did. Da, 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 and he, he said, how long have you been doing it? I go, well, I did my want it. I have a VHS tape of it. It's just amazing how great I was. And then um, doing it. And what's the next steps? And he's like, first of all, don't have anyone see you for two years in the industry if you can help it. And I thought nowadays try to tell a kid that they are not going to believe it because they're going to put everything on social media. And I don't know if necessarily this rule applies anymore, to be totally honest. But I do think that first impressions mean a lot. So when I would see someone like a girl, I'd be like, God, that girl is awful. And then I wouldn't see her for, you know, many years. And I'd see that she's getting stuff. And I'm like, she's awful. And then I'd see her act. And I'm like, no, she's not. She's actually great. I just saw her really green. But that's what I remember. And so that's why I say, take a little time. You don't have you don't have to put everything on social media. But for the, the guy that's in the office, and he's got his kids, I'd say, don't like quit your don't quit your job. But there's there's stuff that you can do. You can write a funny blog, you put put your funny shit on Facebook, and you will get enough little like, energy that you got 300 likes or whatever and you can start your own thing now not everyone's going to be a youtube star making you know 30,000 a month in ads and maybe that i almost feel like that youtube world is you know possibly kind of passing a little bit but there's certainly things that you can do to to feed your creativity in which you will feel like i remember you know um who's the guy that had all the inspirational stuff that's um does the big speaking and he's like six six and Tony Robbins. I got those Tony Robbins tapes and I before I started doing stand up and I would and I listened to them and I started doing stand up because of Tony Robbins. Because he said, just do something, one thing every day towards your goal. Whether that was calling the Omnipop guy or sending out one headshot, just do something every single day. And so that's what I would say to the person that's knows that they're funnier, but maybe they're like, you know, can't take the traditional route of going on the road and doing stand-up. Heather McDonald, <laughs> you're fantastic today. I love this. I didn't know what to expect. I got to park your car. Now, after this podcast, I'm going to crack your back, and it's going to be fantastic. That's awesome. Thank you so much for doing this for me. It was really an honor. I really appreciate it. You're wonderful. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend 
a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Bengal Fan 2016. January 17, 2018, phenomenal show, five stars. All right, a Bengal fan giving me five stars. Bengal fan 2016 writes, I like to save this podcast for when I go trail running. The episode with Bill Burr made me laugh out loud in the middle of the woods, laughing and learning. Thank you so much, Bengal fan 2016. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com, type in the promo code BARRY, and get $100 off and get the best-tasting water you can ever imagine. And I Killed JFK, the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK. The documentary is incredible. you love it. The interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts. Check it out, ikilledjfk.com. And the air doctor, removing dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and everything bad in your home air. And you can save $300 right now. Go to airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry, and start breathing in clean and healthy air today. And lastly, my thanks to Wondery. Check out all the best podcasts in the world there at Wondery.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. I've really enjoyed today. See you next time. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison. Dig your own grave. Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.